On this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be talking about creativity. I'll be joined by the one and only Paul Hughes. Paul was one of the co-founders of Rothko, one of the, the most successful creative agencies in Dublin and the most decorated at Cannes. He's also a very talented artist. He did this while he was in advertising, but he's now a successful artist in his own right and he concentrates on his art. He was also a really good footballer. So this is going to be a good one. Spoiler alert, it may be a long one, but it's going to be a good one. So join me as I talk creativity to Paul Hughes only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, um, I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Hughes. Now, um, Paul, we chatted off mic and I could, I could, could, we could talk for hours and hours because you've had a really interesting life and interesting career and you're a really interesting and unique individual. Um, and we'll get into some of that. We won't be able to get into all of it. But before we start, um, how are you? How are you doing? How's life? Um, how are you feeling? Um, life is good. I'm alive and kicking and breathing and all that sort of stuff. No, life is good. Um, no, it's great. Absolutely. I'm happy as a pig and chase. Very well, Everything's great. Very good. Very Everything. good. Um, well, first of all, thanks for thanks for taking the time. You, you don't do a lot of podcasts, so um, it's great to have you on. And my my boss, Liam McDonald, maybe he twisted your arm, so um, he, he gets some guests on for me sometimes. But I'm delighted you're here and we have a lot to talk about. I'm going to start off... Um, and we'll get into art in a second. We're going to just start off and talk about your journey. So can you talk to me, how did you get into advertising in the first place? And and how, how did your agency career progress? And how did you manage? Because it's not like you're you're just, you've kind of stopped being an advertising person and became an artist. You've always been an artist. So how did you kind of do your art? How was life as an early artist trying to be in a successful ad business? How did you get into it? And how did you manage both those things? Well, I, I got into... Um, um, advertising uh, by chance um, I was in UCD um, 84 to 88 so I got my degree in 88 got a degree in English uh, and economics and I was playing League of Ireland and at that time everybody sort of automatically left so um, I think most of our team um, at the end of that we had a really good season most of them were emigrating going to Australia and various places and I wanted to stay and carry on playing League of Ireland after I left college um, uh, and I was lucky enough to have parents who were going to support me and trying to stay here and, and uh, whilst I tried to get a job so I, I I basically did a couple of courses sort of short force force anchor whatever they were force or anchor I'm not sure back then uh, so I could stay in, 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 in Dublin playing football well, in Ireland playing football, um, I wasn't getting anywhere trying to get a job in '88, um, and then um, I, for some reason, I I I heard of this a uh, an advertising agency called Kennedy Brindley, um, and I just had them on my list, and I I walked in. But at that stage, I'd done so many interviews, got nowhere, um, and um, I probably did bad interviews. I don't know. But I walked in, there was a guy called Sean Whitaker there. It's about seven o'clock in the morning and Sean had braces. He was probably on his 20th Rothman cigarette at seven in the morning. And I met him and I just threw the CV at him and I said, look, there's no point in doing an interview because blah, blah, blah. Look, just give me a job. I'll work for nothing. And please, please, please. And he looked at me and Sean had actually rode in the Olympic or sailed in the Olympics for Ireland, I think through Trinity. So he looked at me and said, sport, okay. He said, like, you'll obviously give it a lash, so I'll give you six months. And that's how I got into it. So I worked for nothing in, in Saatchi. and you know, Kennedy Brindley, which became Saatchi's while I was there. Right. And then stayed on for another year. Um, I was really lucky. Some amazing people in there. Martin Larkin was heading on up at the time. There was uh, Sitchell Winnick. It was amazing guy to be around. Amazing presence. What a brain, strategic brain. There was uh, uh, Barry Dooley was my great guy, was my first boss. Um, and then I got seconded to work with uh, the Procter & Gamble team under a guy called Jerry Nagel. So within a year or so, year and a half, I was working on the likes of Procter & Gamble and stuff, who I hadn't a clue were this big global sort of amazing company. Um, so that all happened pretty quickly. I just sort of, flew, you know, I played football and I went to work and I drank and I played football and I went to work and I drank. And mm. I applied to be a, when I was in Satchis, I applied to be a creative, to the creative director, but I wasn't allowed. Right. So I, 
boots, I think. I think what they call them then when you wore suits. Um, and then after a year and a half or so, again, I think Brian, a guy called Brian Hayes, you might have heard of him. Yeah, yeah. He was in uh, Desert Mars at the time. He asked me to come and join Desert Mars. So I joined Desert Mars for a few years, really enjoyed it. Some great people, kept playing football. Had a couple of bad injuries at that stage. And, um, like, you know, I was struggling physically, um, about 26, 27. And then Satchis came globally came came back from me um, and I moved over to Jeddah to head up the Sachi uh, section of their uh, Procter & Gamble accounts and British American tobacco across the Middle East. So I was only about 27 at the time, 26, 27, and um, I didn't realise it was such a massive thing. Mm. <laughs> I just sort of... Into it. I realised when I got there because they tried to not let me have the job because apparently I was so young um, but I just said well, come on, give, we'll give it a lash so we did um, and all through that time you see I suppose the funny thing is having played football and then I stopped playing football one of the reasons I went to Saudi was that because my uh, you know I, I couldn't physically play anymore my knees were gone um, so I, I retired in 93 92 or 93 and um, and so I went to the Middle East, but I still had that see within me because when you were when I was playing football from when I was a young kid all the way through, all I did was train or play, train or play, practice or play. So I had this obsessive sort of, I suppose, culture within me, or it was bred into me, or taught into me. So when when I suppose when I moved into the advertising, it's just what what was making it work for me was that I had that same sort of obsessive. I didn't have any preconception of what advertising was. I didn't really know much about it, but I just approached it the same way. And, and I, I was, I've always been painting. Uh, and and um, I've been to NCAD, done a few courses at NICE after college as well, just to, when I was injured and stuff like that. Um, but when I went to Saudi um, at that stage, because I'd looked at it, I sort of became obsessed by the, the art as well and the ability to express. So, it really sort of took off there and um, I'd sold pieces before that but I really I was able to focus on it when I was in Saudi down there as well at the same time right um, so it was just that nature I suppose for me there wasn't like I was doing two different I just didn't understand between sort of you know you work hard whatever you do you just work at it and you just keep doing it and doing, mm. it and doing it so I didn't see them as two different careers or anything like that I just saw them as stuff that I loved doing and um, and um, I wasn't so much that I thought I was good at it. I actually just really enjoyed doing it. You enjoyed um, doing it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then when it was down in, uh, I was working with a guy called uh, Patrick Hickey. You've probably heard of him. Yes, um, well. We were working together. He had been a client of mine uh, prior to that. So when we were down there, we had, a, we had a very similar sort of nature in terms of always trying to push things, always trying to find a different way. Um which necessarily wasn't a great thing in Sachi's because we sort of hit the point now if I realized that advertising wasn't the answer to many of Dr. Gamble's problems anymore. So we, we looked at other areas and we realized that actually the agency model uh, as it was potentially was quite limiting. Um, so we, we, we uh, as we do, we push things. So we, we ended up deciding to go our own way and we set Rocco up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and again, we just that same attitude of just like you know, two people coming back. Oh, not another advertising agency. The world doesn't need another advertising agency. Dublin didn't need another advertising agency. But we just set it up as a as a different way of thinking, as an ideas focused, solution focused, mm. problem solving agency, which had crazy at its heart. Mm. Um, but I suppose at the time, with, with Painting, it was easy to do that because, you know, I, I worked and um, it wasn't, I said, Rocco didn't feel like work right. and then painting didn't feel like work. So I just floated from one to the other continuously. Mm. Um, and as they both grew, um, the part they were great, they, they, they gave me the space and allowed me the space to really develop my art because actually they knew it was really good for me, my mm. partners. Um, me being in a good space was good for the agency. So course, it was yeah. a mutual official thing, shall we say? But my, my approach to, to the to the both sides of it are, are, are whether it was football, whether it was advertising, was art is is is, is the same. 
just the output, the final output is slightly different. But you get your your approach was you you give it your all and um and, and, and yeah. it sounds like you know some some somewhat obsessive, which I think yeah some you have to be to a degree if you're if you're going yeah. to be succeed if you're going to be successful at something. Yeah, I, I, obsessive, I suppose. Yeah, would be yeah. I'd always. I have this, some people say it's a flaw, it could be a flaw because it does hurt sometimes, but I've, I've, I'm obsessed about the idea that everything can always be better. There's always a better mm. way, there's a better thing, whether it's painting, whether it's solution, whether it's football, whether it's whatever. You know, I'm one of these people, if we, if we, if we, I'd be of the Pep Guardiola sort of, Unfortunately, style of thinking, which is if we win five nil, I sort of won't understand why we didn't win eight nil. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good that's um, a good way to be. That is a, that's a that's a good. It can it can make it 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 can make the person difficult to work with. Um, when 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 you have those standards, and not everyone does, and not everybody does, and that's understandable. I understand that people have priorities, but it can make it can make the person who's like that difficult for others to work with. But um, you think about that. So Rothko at the time, and and maybe it's because you were. You you were good at lots of different things, right? So, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like people, a lot of people might try harder at football and wouldn't have wouldn't have been as good as you, or advertising, or whatever, or art. So maybe because you were naturally good at certain things, um, you were better at naturally better at things. And there's a modesty in, in Irish people generally. So I think particularly in advertising because we're close to the UK. Um, London is a centre of excellence globally. And I think we, we have an inferiority complex in terms of just, you know, in business and in advertising. But then I remember Rothko, they were one of the first instances that, that I remember a Dublin agency, you know, really catapulted themselves onto a global a global um, stage and winning a can. And I mean, I think, I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I think I, I remember reading or certainly hearing whether it's folklore or not that Rothko were not interested in the Irish Creative Awards Seen it was they were setting their sights on bigger and better, and this notion that you could you were good enough to perform against the best, not just the best in Ireland, the best in the world. So, where did that kind of a confidence and ambition come from um, within Rothko? Uh, well, just before I answer the bigger question, I'll answer that it's it's interesting. The you know, folklore is an amazing thing. Um, you know, I was mm. talking about prejudice assumptions and people because you say one thing, people presume a completely different thing. Um, you know, we, we loved the industry here. We loved and respect so many people within it, so many agencies, um, and so many people, um, and we loved it. But, but the you know, winning in in Ireland wasn't our Everest. It was our base camp. Um, yeah. and, um, I suppose the the ambition came from. I, I suppose the ambition it come it comes from within. It comes from naturally. I mean, it wasn't about fame no fortune it was just about this is what we wanted to do and we never really understood why Irish agencies had this desire to nearly stay just within the the confines of Ireland um, and maybe a lot of it was driven by because a lot of the bigger agencies apart from McConnell's were owned internationally so they were tasked with handling the international clients locally and um, mm. The other issue with the Irish, with the advertising businesses, is I don't know if it's the same in the media. I suspect it's not because you guys always have your own rules, different from the greater side. <laughs> is that we weren't allowed to work with, you know, more than one company in one industrial space. So, so there wasn't a lot to go around. Um, but you know, you looked internationally. There was some amazing Irish people globally, and agencies globally, and leading agencies and stuff, and and. and for us to survive, for us to thrive, for us to do something different, because there's no point in being the same or another version of what's out there. For us to do that and for us to be happy every morning getting up, we have to set our sights. And, and we went, and I, I, we never really understood what the issue was. Um, it was really ourselves holding ourselves back. Um, but as soon as you say that's where you want to go, what well, people don't tended to do was oh that's great that's really exciting their then implication or their corollary is that you don't care about Ireland right. somewhere and I don't I don't understand um but if people wanted to go there that was fine that was you know untrue we were you know, we, mm. we we looked at the awards we we got here but but yeah they were you know platforms to move on mm. um but but to go and compete and you know if you it's like anything in in life I suppose we wanted to prove ourselves on a on a a, a, 
as big a stage as possible. Mm. Um, I, I didn't get past League of Ireland <laughs> soccer. I, I, you know, I wanted to get past Irish average. You know, I wanted to yeah, to, yeah. to play on a pitch beyond that. So yeah. we all did. Um, but I would have to say it was a collective. It was just a collective natural desire with um, uh, the two Patricks and 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 Richard as well had worked internationally. Patrick Hickey had worked internationally. Ron, I think, worked internationally. Mm-hmm. I just worked in. It actually realised that actually it's not that big a thing. You just have to go out there and put yourself out there. Yeah, um, yeah it's a belief and, thing as well, and, isn't you it? You know, you have to try, and you 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 know you have to fail. I mean, there was 18 months, two years. I think we came second in nine pitches in a row or something. And right. that hurt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that hurt. That really did hurt. But you can either, you know, reel back and say, okay, we're, we're going to stay where we are, or you just keep going. Keep going. And it was yeah. just actually nature just to keep going. And it wasn't out of anything else, but just it was interesting. And yeah. you, Dave, what have, does happen is when you go into those spaces and you push it, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about the people around you. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think is really important, it's about the people, it's about the collective. You know, we, we did have this philosophy in Rocco, um, which was great, it was was to always try and employ people better than ourselves, mm. even when there was two or three or four of us in the agency, which I think was better. Never employ down someone to work for you. Employ somebody who can actually be our boss mm. or be better, and we did that. So we tended to bring in people who had the same, you know, um, ambition and mm. desire, and, uh, and that's it. Just naturally happened, um, mm. and then um, you know, momentum just built from that. Um, but it, it wasn't easy. No, it wasn't but, easy. But it was. It, it was it, a case that you did inspire. Like I, I was doing some research on this, and I think up up to twenty eighteen. You know, I think Irish agencies had won, I, I don't know, like seven or six awards in the 50 odd years of Canada. And, and since when the JFK on, on silence campaign, since then, I think in the last kind of five years, there's been 20 odd or 30 or something like that. So it, it's like Roger Bannister breaking the, the four minute mile or whatever it was. Like, I mean, nobody done it for, for years and years. Then suddenly when he does, it gives other people belief. So I think Rothko really did blaze a trail in terms of raising the, the collective self-confidence of an industry to go, you know what, we are, you know, if and it's that thing, look, if Rothko can do it, um, we can do it, if, you know, and we should we should set our sights higher. So I think it was, it was, it was a great thing to happen because it, it brought us up with our natural creativity into into commercial creativity. So um, a question for you now, you, you just finished a, a really successful exhibition in New York, uh, Bassard Blue. I want to ask you a question. Do you prefer the, the deadline and, and, the deadline-driven pace of commercial creativity or the self-imposed deadlines of being an artist? Because imagine those, those the process might be the same, but one has, a, one has a self-imposed timeline and another has deadlines that you have to deliver on. What do you prefer? What, in what construct do you work best? Um, yeah, I've, I've never, yeah, um, that's a big question now, um, but I, I don't really have a preference or I don't, um, I don't. Uh, deadlines never. Um, deadlines, uh, I suppose, in, in advertising business are always scary because you know it involves so many other people. It's not just about yourself. Mm. So the, the huge responsibility to everyone around you, and you know, deadlines were always. You know, they were deadlines, and you know, the interesting thing about deadlines was if a deadline was three days away or or three months away, you know, you'd still probably solve it. As well, mm. if you know what I mean. and you'd probably you're still be panicking the last the last few hours beforehand. Yeah. You'd probably be still in the same sweat, you know. Uh, you know, and I think there's a lot of self inflicted, you know, whipping ourselves. We, we we like that sort of stuff. The nature of the people who were, who were in it. yeah. I mean, there was a you know, deadlines are 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 there for a reason because there are commercial reasons and people make decisions. But the way I look at stuff is that you see, for me, nothing is ever finished. Everything can always get better. So deadlines are just a a line. Uh, you know what I would see is a visually a vertical line that comes along, and, and it's in an in, infinite long horizontal process of you know. As soon as a deadline is finished, you're, when you meet the clients in a couple of weeks and you're looking at, it, you're probably going to improve and move it on. Yeah. Um, so it's just about getting your 
you know, it's a process to 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 make sure you deliver because you're you're delivering for somebody else. You're not solving your own. You're not you're not you know advertising is a you know your people are paying you to deliver them solutions to add value to them to 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 help them solve their problems. So we're not advertising it. You know, a deadline for an advertising agency. You know, we're we're not the center of the world. The client is the center of the world. So mm. so. You understand that in the in the art world, you see, I don't um, deadlines. I don't really have deadlines. Mm. Uh, don't take that again that the wrong way. It's a different. I I am I paint obsessively. I paint like <laughs> paint about forty fifty hours a week probably, um, and six days a week. And I I, I paint because painting for me is just this never ending process of mm. just working and trying to get better and trying to improve. What happens is every you know deadlines are brought in by galleries for the. But I don't necessarily. It's not that I'm in a rush to get something done. Is that bodies of work have come together, pieces have come together, they've started to mold, and now we want to we want to make something out of it. Mm. So near, nearly a, a, a dead. Now there are other. I've had a couple of instances for shows in places like Hong Kong where I've been you know told Paul you can have a show in in eight weeks but you need to have 14 pieces mm. that was an interesting one I didn't sleep a lot for that but uh, I actually found it really exciting it was really challenging for myself um, and it was amazing to have to get it done um, but that's not what drives me in the art world mm. my art world is my my deadline is when I die right okay that, that's when I can't paint anymore that's when I'm finished and mm. Anything that comes in in the meantime is a is a dead when I get a chance to show the work. It's when I I I, I suppose in some ways I get to control it a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but now I'm working with more galleries. I've worked with galleries in the states that are uh, uh, the Nick O'Brien Gallery in, in the in the, the states, and you know they're. I'm sure they will get more demanding and sort of mm-hmm. timelines and stuff yeah, be so. delivered. But but I have to protect what I. Do because I'm my art is the center of my world now. Yeah. Um. So my art is more important than a show. Okay. Yeah. So you. Exactly. So yeah. But it probably it probably and particularly because you 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 say yourself it's never finished. But it would never be finished at some point. You have to say at some point. Oh, it, you, you know, you might stop. Some, so so Bass of Blue, for example, it goes in. It's it's exhibited. And then it's over. I want to talk to you about Bass of Blue for a second because I read that you, for years, you you struggled with Blue for a long time. That was the way that the way you said it. What did you not like about Blue? Like what what did Blue? What's wrong with Blue? What did it represent to you? And then why did you end up going with it with a, a, a suite, a body of work that is entirely devoted to Blue? So what's wrong with Blue? And, and so what made you lean into it? What's wrong with Blue? Um, apart from Manchester City and Chelsea, oh, I'm here with you on that. I'm, I'm totally here with you on that one. It is Man United's second kit sometimes, or third kit, so it's not all bad. Well, I actually have, believe it or not, I have a, a 1968 jersey piece my partner gave me from the from the the uh, European Cup win '68. Oh, so oh, that oh, is man, Peter. He's an Everton Blue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Poor Peter. Um, blue, blue is interesting. I, it's interesting. I've always used blue. I've always used. I've always had a color is um, uh, color is a fascinating and interesting thing. And quite often, the color of a color. It's going to sound weird. The color of a color or the impact of a color relies on everything else around it outside of the color, mm. not the color. It's um, and blue. Uh, I have a couple of paintings hanging there which are very blue based, whatever. But I, I, I've had this. I, I've never had this hugely emotional response to it. I never, again, it's developed into that I hate blue. I didn't hate blue. I just was ambivalent. I suppose I wasn't passionate about it. I, and I used to listen to people talking about it. And, you know, you'd, you know, you'd look at, at Reinhardt or East Klein and things, people's this obsession with blues and stuff. And, and um, I really like dark light as opposed to daylight. Mm. Um, so I like the sort of the. So I, I'd, I'd always people were going on about blue, but I and I, I had seen it as quite a as a color I used and a cute was at work with, but I I really didn't understand it. Um, and I moved studio about three or four years ago. Um, just as COVID was 
uh, happened. And um, I moved out of this amazing studio old bar and I moved into a, a new studio, a lovely place. Um, but I was sort of locked away in COVID. And I just, I, I, for me to get into a space, to paint in a new space, I was really worried that maybe the magic of what I do, as we all insecure people do, particularly someone like me, who believes that anything I do, you know, is because of something else. I don't know why. But I, I thought, well, maybe I can't paint outside this barn. Maybe the magic is in the barn and not in me. So I had to, in this new space, I had to paint my way into it. So I stripped the building in, in, in with, of everything and painted it white. My, one of my daughters helped me and then I just started to paint. Um, and I, I, I just thought, okay, well, if I'm going to try and paint my way into this building, the only way I can solve something like that, I need to actually just work. I need to do to find mm-hmm. out if something work. So I, I thought, well, what's probably the most difficult thing? And I thought, well, it's an opportunity. I'm going to take a do some paint and just work on blue and try and understand it better because I'm not going to be seeing anyone for four or five months anyway because of COVID. So um, I, I locked myself away and I, I, I got all sorts of different blues that I could get hold of. Um, I work in lots of different materials, Dave, because uh, I love the, the, when they don't supposed to go together and they clash and they all sorts. I find it fascinating all just, just discovering all that stuff. But also I'd work, I work a lot with raw pigment and mix it on the canvas and, and pigment colours are made up of multiple colours behind it. So by actually crushing them and smashing them and working with them, on, I was discovering all these other colours within blue. So I just kept working away and working away, you know, and I literally say head down because I work on the ground but most of the time and literally my head is down and I'm not really conscious when I'm working. I'm in a, a zone, as I would call it. It's just pure motion. And then... Um, as I worked, I began to just discover this stuff around blue or how it worked and and, and, and it's absolutely infinite colour within blue. And what started out as two or three pieces, I lifted my head about eight months later because COVID went down nine months later and I had about 15 pieces and it was like, holy fuck, like nice. Jesus, this is. And it was just blue. There was nothing else but blue. Um, and I thought it was fascinating. And what I learned, and, and, and it's one of the things I've always done, is that I, I, uh, I really have an issue with prejudice and assumption. And I've, been, I've an issue with particularly presumption of my own presumptions. And I'm just like anybody else. Is that I actually realized that, and I knew somewhere that if I was going to find out what my issue with blue is or my ambivalence, the thing was not to run away from it, it was to jump into it. When you jump into something, I actually discovered the issue wasn't blue, the issue was me. I I actually had a limited understanding. And the way to get over that is just to jump in and space, literally swim in blue. Mm. Um, so what that taught me was not just about blue, but it actually taught me that you can create really fascinating stuff, even just out of one color. Right. You don't have to be limited by what's around you. The limitations are in your mind and not in anything else. And that's why my paintings always work, not in logic. Right. Um, If I think about what I'm going to paint, if I think about what I want to create, it's I will only ever be limited by that thought. It won't be any better. Paint out pure physicality and emotion and, and let it sweep along. So that blue journey was, it's, it, it's a much bigger journey than just about the colour. It was a journey into myself, into my own issues, into learning about my limitations. Um, and, and what it did was it opened up a, a world for me of understanding in terms of where I can go and, and what I can do. Right. Um, just one colour. And I found it fascinating. And I, mm. by the actual just physical act of obsessively painting and trying to create these works out of one colour, my whole, I would say, skill levels and my understanding, my natural instinct around the materials I'm working with just cataclysmically moved forward. Um, and, And for me, that's what art is about. For me, it's about a journey of discovering and of learning and of getting better and better and better and better and better. A bit like football, I love playing it. I'm not a great watcher of it. Mm-hmm. I love paint. I don't spend my life in galleries. I mean, I love 
going to certain galleries and I love working, but I won't spend days and days and days right. and days staring, you know, obsessively. Mm. About I want to, I don't want to watch it. You don't have time because you're busy I doing wanna, it. You don't have time. Yeah. yeah. So I actually just buy, I go back to this thing of, of, it goes back to whether it's Rocco, whether it's football, whether it's whatever. I, I, I just think, I, for me, what works for me, and this is about me, Dave, it's not about, I'm not telling anybody what, what I think everybody else should do. For me, the act of doing, physically doing, jumping in, seeing where it goes, not setting out with an end goal and making sure that end goal happens, right. but actually giving you the possibility to shoot way fucking beyond there yeah, to somewhere yeah, yeah. in never believe. And that's, why I love what so, I do. And you don't know where you don't know where it's going to. You don't know. I'm talking oh. about you don't know where it's going to end up. Okay, so we don't know where it's going to end up. But but tell me when you start. You go in day one. You have a blank canvas. It's on an easel, or maybe it's not. What what's the? So how do you how do you start? You, you said you work on the floor. Do, 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 literally, is that literally like am I? I have a, a picture of you taking the the canvas off the easel, chucking on the floor, lying on the ground, and away you go and looking at it from different perspectives. Is, it, is that have I misinterpreted that or is that literally what you do was that, was no, that a no, metaphor no, no I've never worked on an easel because I you know they'll break after five minutes they'll just fall over and smash I'm a very physical painter very so doesn't work but also gravity has a massive effect on on, on paint as well so I didn't want to be so I started out uh, because the, the sky park I, I, I actually just throw the canvas on the floor whether okay. it's stretched or stretched um, and I just but often I might just stare at it for an hour or so of a coffee. And I, I, I get, I surround the canvas then. I, I pour all my, my materials out and around, sort of, so it's around me mm. within. Because you've got to bend over the canvas, and, you know, as I'm getting older, walking backwards and forwards across the room isn't. <laughs> once I'm locked in the position, Dave, it's difficult it's, to get back out. The, the knees, the knees are back to haunt you. <laughs> The noises are terrible, but uh, so I, I just start working, and, and literally, I I I've always started in impulsive chaos. Chaos for me is a good chaos. Will always like if you keep abstracting abstraction, it comes back to reality at some point. Chaos. Right. If you keep being like things will form out of it. So what I do is I I, I create a lot, and I I. I I say I, I, I do it blindly, but I, I think instinctively now I don't. I don't know what's going on, but I, I start to apply paint. I start to apply it in different directions. I let paints happen. I, 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 I'm obsessed about brush strokes and brush stroke directions because it changes, it changes how paint works with itself. Um, so I, I, I tend to walk around. I, I think some people say stalk the canvas and I attack it from different directions. So when I start out for the first few days, the canvas doesn't have an up or down or sideways or whatever. Yeah, I'm just putting down layers of, of color and, um, you know, working brush strokes in different directions. Mm. Sometimes I let it dry for a couple of hours because you get a different texture and then you work. And so you just keep going and going and going. And then at a point, that can go on for days and days. Uh, um, what I do now is, as I'm getting slightly older, I, I, I actually put it sometimes on a wall every now and again just to see my, right. so my back actually gets some relief. But I, I just keep painting and I keep working with these very long physical brush strokes. Uh, I, I don't do delicate, really. I don't do... Um, I. Uh, there are artists who are way better. I get much more joy from that. I don't. Um, so it, I, I just jump in and, I, and it goes and it goes. And what happens is I, I, as I'm painting, Dave, I start to, you know, you, you, you automatically, it gets quite emotional. And you, 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 you know, you start to feel certain things. You start to remember certain things. And you start to, to, to you know, you have huge conversations with yourself, unfortunately, but you're, you're going through this. And, and actually, the, you, you start to then choose colors and directions and shapes and, and where we'll go based on how you're feeling. Right. Um, so some of, we used to solve, in Rocco, we used to solve a lot of problems on a five-side football pitch. Right. Um, I actually solve a lot of problems now as I paint and right. work it out. My, you know, 
just working through it. The physical act of physicality. Yeah, again, it's, actually, it's, it's kind of always evolving. You, you, and you said there you have a lot of conversations with yourself. And I, and I read that um, in, in this, maybe it's it's in, in every bit of work you do, but in this suite of paintings, you, you and I quote, you liberated yourself from the limitations of yourself. So, because I think that's a really interesting, it applies to you and art, but it applies to everybody and everything. Like, I mean, I know my job, but we, like we are human beings, we're, we're, we're kind of constrained by our own, we're prisoners of our own experiences, kind of the way I was put, I can't remember who said yeah. it. So how do you, how do you go about, because that, I, I love the sound of that, right? And I don't know how easy it is to do that. I don't know how I would go about liberating myself from the limitations of myself. So how do you go about doing that? I'm looking for I'm looking well, for some tips here that I can that I can steal and translate into well, my own related world. But what do you do? Well, I think we all have to find how we do that ourselves because we all do it in different ways. But if you if you think about if if the greatest painting that I'm ever going to paint is in my head or what I'm imagining and that's it then that's a limit that's sort of if, that, if that's as great as it can be um, that's not very exciting so uh, the only way for me to push beyond that and actually if I'm limited by what I can imagine uh, you know or if Rothko himself the artist was limited or Pollock was limited or de Kooning or Monet or or any of these great art da Vinci was limited by what they imagined. Um, they would never have achieved certain things. You'd never, you'd never break through. I suppose. What, what I, what I, how do I do it? How do I go? I, I, I do it by just doing, and by not going in saying I am going to paint this. This is what I am going to do because I will end up doing it, and I'll do it really, really well. Mm. That's there will be a limit on it, so I will do, do that. I might as well do a full photograph then. Yeah. Um, so what I do is I I I I I just do, and I'm just, one of the things I do. I actually did it yesterday. One of my daughters was here, and she got a bit angry at me because we were work. I was working on painting, and, and she was sitting here watching me, and and uh, something annoying me about it. And the only way I could actually solve the annoyance was actually just to fuck paint it. And just to push through it and go, it's not, it's sort of 98% there, but I'm not going to find a 2%. Right. I actually need, I actually need to go at it again. And about six hours later, I, it was, I was delighted I did that. So I, I, what I'm able to do is, I suppose, what I've learned, taught myself to do is to push through that fear. Mm. Fear of, I've often pushed paintings way beyond like a couple of paintings potentially have been sold and I've, they just don't exist when someone comes around to take them because they've gone, because I've, I've worked on them more. <laughs> but I, I, now, sometimes you push through that. Sometimes you don't end up with a better painting. Sometimes you've just wrecked it. Right. Or, and you, but actually, I feel okay with that because it wasn't good enough anyway. So, so and it wasn't about okay or it's not about just being all right. So I think... I. I got over the fear of it being wrong. Right. And for a long time in my life, I wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't able to do that. Um, but I suppose that, that, that a, a fear is a really limiting, powerful thing. You know, it's what came, kept people in caves, you know, way back. I know they were afraid to leave. Um, but but I, I think we've all, we always have fear within us. And I think fear is, is a limiting factor. And I, I think... When you push through that and you allow yourself the space to see what those possibilities are when you push through, it can be amazing, mm. but it also can be crap. Mm. But even when it ends up crap, Dave, it's not a waste of time because you've learned something. You've learned something about yourself and you've improved. So next time, you don't have that fear anymore right. because you know what's going to happen and where it's going to mm. go. So it's just this constant, if, you, if it's not, Right, or your, you know, fear or limitations, or the fear of getting it wrong versus the fear of getting it right. It's the classic one of, you know, do you come to the edge and do you jump off the cliff, or do you not jump off the cliff and spend your time, you know, mm. think, Jesus, would I, have, would I fly? Or if you do fly, great. Mm. Maybe but, you don't. So fly, how do you know? At least, you know? At least you know. Yeah. How do you know when you're finished, though? Right. So I mean, in advertising, I mean. 
if, if you said, if you pitched a client in a tissue session, got this idea, you're going to do that, here's a storyboard, whatever, clients said, love it, off you do it. Then they turn up to buy it and said, oh, change your mind, it's made a completely different thing, right? You wouldn't do that. But if so, you say you might have sold a painting and then somebody came to collect it and it's gone or it's changed or it's, it wasn't what they thought. So if it's never finished, well, you have to stop at some point. How do you know? Do, do, you, do you just... Like, how do you know when to stop? When are you finished? And when do you say no? You know, because you don't have you don't have a a, a, a paymaster or, or or a critic as such a client and and a, and a, and a deadline where they buy the work off you necessarily. So, how do you? When is it ever finished? Or when do you? When can you let go of it? That's a really difficult question, and a lot of it depends on my me myself, my mood, where I'm at, how I'm feeling. Um, how comfortable I am with myself, how, um, but often also the painting, it's, it's going to sound really weird nowadays, and I'm, I'm not a deep, you know, person like that, but the painting quite often just tells you, it sort of looks at you and sort of goes, yeah, this is, be okay with this, Paul. Um, and it's also an understanding that I, I will normally, when I know it's done is when I've achieved something in a painting that I haven't achieved before. Right. Then I've achieved something. I haven't achieved everything. I've achieved something. So I can go, yeah, I've, I've, I've done some, something here that, is, that I've never done in a piece before. And I've learned something. With so I, I'm able to move on, I, I believe. And also just looking at it, does it annoy me? If I have to keep looking back at it and I, and it, and it's, Quite often, I'll be having a conversation with someone, and and literally, I love, I love zoned out from them, and I'll be staring at the painting, and all I want to do is just, no, I need to go at this again. <laughs> yeah. The painting sort of will tell me, it will tell me, and I will know, and I leave a painting around, and if if two months later I'm still looking at it, I'm going, yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember the feeling, I remember how I was working, the brush strokes, it's giving me this sense of completeness. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm great. Right. Is it the best? Anything I've ever done? No, because it will be the next one will always be better. Otherwise, it won't exist. Right. But that that is a moment there where where I mean I've I've taken work out from fourteen fifteen years ago and and reworked it because I'm a different person now. Right. And I don't like looking at it. So what often you know? So I don't often do that because it, it sort of kills your legacy. Is that, yeah, because they're, they're time stamped as to how you felt and what what was going uh, on with you and your influence at that time. So if you if you if you take them back out and and transpose what your life is like now on them, you've lost that kind of good or bad, well, whatever it was, you know. But also sometimes, sometimes you're looking at it and you're going, you know, I will only do it if I, I'm looking and going, but that that was just me being naive or right. that is a is a point in time or actually. I was actually in fear and I was holding back and okay. I was not prepared to, and I was to, um, so, you know, there's, there's a, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a really interesting battle at the moment where I'm exploring green and I'm exploring reds, um, in a monochromatic way again. Um, I'm just taking a break from blue. Because yeah. You've had enough of blue just, for a while. Yeah, yeah. But just, it's also, as you can, I actually don't want to also just become the blue man. No. Um, which which um, can do that, but um, I'm not, so I'm working on actually. Even these colours are just so different in how they work with each other and what they do. And actually, it's incredible to see the impact on human beings on mm. the different colours. And mm. it's like I, I'm not mad, I'm bonkers. Yeah. But uh, so these are these are. You know, the easiest thing, and I've already gone, why don't you just keep going blue? Now it's, what's wrong with blue? There's nothing wrong with blue. I love yeah. blue. But I will keep, bastard blue is going to be a, a journey that's going to go on and on and on and on. Right. But it doesn't define me. Yeah. You, 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 you'd you explore other things. Um, like, art, art has yeah. always been a passion. Painting has always been a passion of yours. Even, But now it's your entire focus, right? Do you, do you think that your background in advertising and, and the commerciality of that. So you understand business, right? Which maybe a lot of artists don't. Um, did that give you, did that, would that give you an advantage that you would have that other people may not have? Like the fact that you ran a really successful, uh, you, you, you were really clued into business, solving clients' problems. You, you, you dipped into lots of different industries. You understand the world of, of commercialism and commerciality and consumers, what people want. Did that, 
background um, give you any advantage there? Or, or is it a case, because I can imagine it might go against you because, you know, that the origin story of the artist is that the, the troubled artist who can't make ends meet and all. And yours is very, your, your story is very different. So was your ad background something that went for you uh, or was it something that the ad or the art industry kind of frowned upon, if you will? Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, there is a whole Netflix series or a podcast series just on that one question. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I know. I'm trying to cram a lot in, but listen, yeah, you know. <laughs> Trust me on that one. Um, it, it does it uh, the, for the, the business? No, I, I in in my art world, uh, the business is left to others um, who are better. The art world, commerciality is a, a, a quite a unique world. Um, but I am very lucky again to have people around who 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 look after that as much as possible. Um, mm-hmm. Galleries tend to do that, and there is. I mean, you have to take responsibility, and you have to. But I, it's 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 not a space that I. It, it's it's not my. I'm a very single-minded person, in and I'm very. I like to think of myself. I, I don't mean that in a bad way or a ruthless way. I just very focused in in the time that I have left on this planet where, where I want to push myself to what I want to try and achieve um, commerciality within the art world or the business side of it, um, it is there and it's important but it's not my driving force um, and I think even if I hadn't have been successful in the advertising world it wouldn't be my driving force because if I was driven by having to sell I'd be a shit painter, Dave. Right. I would be a yeah, shit yeah. painter. Be limiting myself. I would be painting from the perspective of what might sell. Um, and I know me as an artist, I would be pretty shit at that because I wouldn't really enjoy it. Right. Um, so I just, oh, I would be a failed artist then. Okay, yeah. um, I, I'm a bit like, oh, it was a bit like Rocco, I suppose, in certain ways. But we, we, it's all about... The, but the commerciality for me is that is an is an output, is an end, is a consequence of the work. A validation and that we're doing good work, stuff. Yeah, if the work for me, if 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 the work is everything I believe in, everything that I trust, the commerciality will happen, and the commerciality is happening. You know, I, I'm, uh, you know, that side is 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 good, mm. um, which is a huge bonus. Um, but it's great. But I leave that to other people because yeah. if I get that into my head, and that sometimes it does, you know, it, it, you're in your head when you're painting and mm. it's a blockage and it's a, it goes back to all those things. But it's a consequence. But, you know, it, so the work is the work and, uh, you know, and that's what impacts and that's what sort of, um, that that for me is the most important thing. And right. it's, it's a bit like Rothfield. Well, you know, I was surrounded by, you know, people as well who, who were who were very good in that space, commercial yeah, space. Yeah. So I'd have been slagged many times for, you know, I'd give work away for free if I could. Right. But, you know, it doesn't even advertising work or strategic work. You know, it just it's because that's it's the work that's that yeah, I love. Yeah, that's the passion. That's the it's but, the craft of that and the ad world, for example. You know, I, 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 yeah, you know, you, you, you have to value yourself. Yeah, um, and I've. And I'm, again, I keep going back to now. I'm surrounded by really good people as well, and some of them were in my previous world as well. Whatever, and they just they keep me grounded, and they make sure that I that I keep valuing myself. Yeah, that I don't because I can be self destructive, Dave. Mm. And it's 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 good to have people who do that. But from a commercial or a brand point of view, whatever, I don't forget that my brand, my art brand, is my work. My work is what impacts. My work is what sells. My work is what defines me. And the interesting thing, I don't. I, you know, my my, it's my work is me on a canvas. Right. It is as brutally honest and brutally revealing about everything that I am, and right. and, and I can't. And that's what it is. So within mm. my within my art world, I live very honest, brutally honest open life and that I I I share maybe I you know share what's going through my in my mind but that's that's what it's about but I think that's in the art world that's what maybe why the work connects with people um, mm. I don't know if I'm answering question no now. you are well I suppose no you, you, you are um, let, let me just kind of 
tease out one. So you've talked about you surround yourself with good people, and and you rightly so. You you, you let them to understand that the, the business of art, look after that side of it, and you con- concentrate on on the art of art. But in an agency, right? So you would have had colleagues who may or may not have agreed, or you know, they, you would have had externalities and people who would say, "Yeah, Paul, you know, I just think you've missed a bit there." Whether it was the planner or whether it was either the Patricks or whoever, and ultimately a client. So you would have had people's opinion. Um, whether you liked it or agreed with it or not, there was external factors that you had to deal with and people you worked with. Um, do, do you do you have any of those external, not so much in business, but do you have any of those externalities in terms of external influences from a from your art point of view now? Do you seek counsel from anybody else or do you get input from anybody else? Or Because you don't have to anymore, right? So, but but do you still, who, do you, who is there anybody that you trust, not in commercial, but on, on your art, would you ask anybody's opinion or is it just, no, it's me? Um, well, first and foremost, yes, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, the answer is yes, um, because I, I do. It, it, I, you, it, it is a world where you absolutely, you are your biggest critic, and it's critically important that you have a relationship with yourself where you're able to be brutally honest and actually just say that shit or that shit. When, that, when I say shit, it's just. It's it's good, but it's not good enough. That to me is shit. So it's just on the on the, the scale of stuff. So, but I do have people and people I I I I trust, but I trust them on a human level. Right. I trust them uh, on a. I, I trust them in 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 a wider context of of, of my life as well. Um, and you have to push people to to be to be honest, whatever. But I have a couple of people like. Um, I'm not particularly going to get into names, whatever, but because I think it's unfair on certain people. But certainly, mm-hmm. my my wife uh, Jen has been a she's she's a great grounder. Um, she's great, she's a huge supporter, but she's as quick to be as grounding as 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 right. to make sure you're on the ground. And also, she's to go, yeah, Paul, that's fine, but you know, I think you're, I think you're, uh, I think you're overthinking this. All right, I mean, she'll she'll spot me a while a mile away. Right. Um, okay. So you need that. And you will turn around, and uh, you know I have people in galleries, whether it's uh, Maureen, whether it's Tanya, uh, or Nicholas over in uh, New York, or uh, good friends, people like Liam, Patrick Hickey, people like that are mm. are, are great. Um, but I, I I have to be careful seeking counsel, or because mm. overdo that. Yeah. Um, so you you've got to take responsibility. For what you do, and I, I like I, I've got to take responsibility, and I've got to stand over it, and I've got to because um, otherwise, you know, I, I'm not I, when I'm painting. It's not a democratic process. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, now, not a democratic process. I got, I, I get you. Yeah, um, I'm not going to keep you too much time. I've got like, I'll give you two or three more questions, then I'll let you get back to to um, immersing yourself in not blue, anything but blue. Um, so uh, say. Like any like any creative industry, you get creative blocks. What and I'm sure you you get creative blocks where for whatever reason it's just not working. You're not liking it. You're not feeling it. What do you do? How do you take yourself out of that? Or how do you, you kind of go through creative blocks? Do you do you, do you leave it? Do you walk away from it for a bit of time and come back to it like the classic trick of go do something completely different and you can solve the problem if it's kind of critical thinking. How do you approach creative blocks? Um. It's an interesting one because I thought about this and there were things I thought I used to do and I realized I don't really. The way I get to a creative block, well, sometimes the first thing to get to a creative block is to know that you're struggling. Right. That's a, and that sometimes you don't know you're struggling. Um, and sometimes you can do I said I can paint myself into a cul-de-sac because I've just physically burnt. I've actually just over overdone it. I've overworked. But actually, what I do is on the short runs, I you know I might take forty, I might take a few days where I don't paint. Mm. Uh, but but I find the way out of it for me is to paint, is to work, um, but work without purpose or work with. Because usually, if I've got a creative block, it's because I've 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 created some vacuous purpose or goal that I need to you know that something needs to happen when it actually doesn't. So for me, that the way out of it is just to 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 burst my own bubble and just slap myself out of it but by painting and if I'm by actually painting I always I always say to people is like for 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 all the paintings that end up hanging on walls or in galleries or 
corporates or people's houses, whatever it is, it's it's like you've got to paint the shit paintings. Right, yeah. Yeah. Go through them because they're in you, the problems are in you, and the only way to get them out is to paint them out of you. Right. So quite often when I'm a problem, I will, if I hit a blockage, I will come at it from a completely different angle. I will, hence I start with red, or I will just start something very different, and I will come at it and come at it and come at it. And if you come at the problem, if you come at it from something completely different, you actually realize that you know, you're solving the problem that really wasn't there. But that's why I work, I have to work through it mm. physically. Okay. And I have to more interesting. Usually I hit a blockage is because I've got locked into something that I've painted before and I'm trying to do a better version of what I've painted before as opposed to just starting from scratch. Right. So okay. my, my solution is, is to work and to know that I'm going to, whatever I'm going to work on for the next three, four weeks is never going to see a wall, mm-hmm. never going to see light. It's just the process. It's right. just going to lead me somewhere else. Okay. Uh, okay. And I'm okay with that. And that's fine. And I actually enjoy those hiatuses. It's fine. Because usually I end up at the end of it uh, learning and discovering and, I, you know, something really interesting and, and going somewhere else. Mm. But if I too long out, it, 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 um, mm. I, it's good for me, really. It's yeah, not good yeah. for me. No, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, now, by by your own admission, and maybe Liam some of this as well, you're not a person who like loves the spotlight and the limelight, so you tend to shy away from from that. But yet, we look at what your career, and particularly in advertising, like you've got to an incredibly successful career in advertising in, in, a, in a top agency in very senior, you're working on international clients. So that's not a job where you can avoid the spotlight. You have to put yourself out there, and particularly again in terms of kind of creative, where you're 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 putting your thoughts, and that can be quite subjective, and people don't get it. So you're you're putting yourself out there all the time. Um, how did you how did you get over that kind of uncomfortableness with with putting yourself forward, and and how did you manage to to tackle that and still do what you did in advertising? Did you get coaching, or did you just get over it yourself? Just like you're saying about your art, you just got to work through it. How did you tackle that? Um. Um, I think that's probably a question that other people might be best placed to answer that. Um, I'm not too sure I ever got over it or through it. Right, okay. <laughs> I think I, my way through it. Um, but it didn't I, hinder you, but maybe you didn't get over it, but it, but it, never, it never held you back in terms of, in spite of it, you, 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 did, you were hugely successful in your ad career. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I go back to the people around. Again, I go back to the the good people around who who had the ability to understand me and the willingness to understand me and the willingness to 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 compromise for me. Okay. Uh, so incredibly lucky. And um, when I say issues, I'm like I'm not a. I I, I was I would you know I can be terribly insecure. Um, I can be self full of self-doubt, self-loathing in some cases, and, and other times very confident. Um, I, I, I wasn't, a, I'm not a great uh, public speaker. And uh, it was funny, the very, very first Rothko uh, board meeting, which was only two of us or three of us, I think, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> We're writing the articles or whatever you do when you're trying to be all pretending business serious. And one of the things to do is, We'll set this up. Delighted to do it once. I never have to present to a client again. I'll I'll be the wizard of art. And how does that work? how does that work out? And the guy said, "Yeah, absolutely, Paul." And yeah, fuck it. Twenty, thirty years later, no. Yeah, I, yeah. I did. I you know there were times. I I used to I used to do presentations and do stuff whatever. But I I, I um and I can be very good and sometimes not very good. But it also reached a point in my life where where I actually had no issue turning around to clients and saying, "Look, you know." This presentation could go great or it could be shite. I don't know. Right. But trust me, but don't let it get in the way of the idea. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. My issues get in the way of an idea. Um, gotcha. And also, and, and quite often, you know, there were people around me who, who, who took care of me, who, who stepped in when needed to be stepped in. And it's not a, it reaches a point in your life where actually you're not embarrassed about it anymore. You're not, you just, it's, it's just who you it are. It is as what person. it is. Yeah, no, exactly. It, it is, is what it is. It is what it is. Um, and um, I'm a malap, you know. I, you know, I, I, I'm. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Some people love being on stage. Some people love that. Uh, it, it's not what I love. It's not what I. You know, I used to be really bad at openings, gallery openings. 
um, and having to be there and, and not because and it's amazing to see people look at your work and, and the reaction, the positive or the negative reaction. I love the negative reaction as much as the positive reaction. I just love any reaction. Yeah. But be there to talk about it, whatever. I'd be, I'm, I'm just, it, it, that's not my comfort zone. Yeah. But then yeah. I spent my life stepping outside my comfort zone. So yeah. you sort of get used to it. But, yeah. but it, you know, it, it's it's not it's not something I crave. Yeah, no, I I I I've been saying I I never liked I never like um, public speaking, and I just and I had to do it, and I've gotten better at it. And I don't like it, but I think it's funny how the world has changed because when I started, um, I was sent on. I can't remember how much money they wasted sending me on presentation courses, thinking that I was that I was going to um, present like a Shandalock Nan or an Alan Cox, and it was like I'm never going to be that person, right? And what I learned later on, and what the world has like started to realize was that everybody's different. So your own presenting style, there is no, there is no standard way of presenting. What works for you is not going to work for somebody else. And and it's, you bring your own personality into it. And once they realized that well, I was never going to present like Alan Cox or Shenda, we just kind of got on with it. And then I, I still don't like it, but I have to do it. Um, what does the next 12 months look like for you? Like hugely successful um, Bastard Blue. You said it's it's on pause at the moment. Your 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 exploration of blue is not gone. It will never be finished. But what's the next 12 months? What are you what are you working on? Have you any gallery? Have you any exhibitions coming up? And and if people want to find out a little bit better or just have a nosy look at the work, where can they do that? Yeah. Well, again, yeah. I mean, when I because language is important, I suppose. But Paul, Paul, it's just I'm I'm the Bastard Blue is a is a big project, and it's a project I'm only just scratching the surface on at the moment. Um, as I said, I'm just I'm working on um, some other routes at the moment, which may be for showing in um, in about six months. Um, but Bastard Blue will keep going, as as will other series I work on. Um, I have a. Um, uh, as I said, I was over in New York in May, um, and I got I'm invite. I'm so I'm actually showing in. Uh, I get me dates right because we're on the phone last night. I actually have an opening, believe it or not, on June the 29th. There's a preview night on June the 29th in a gallery in Chelsea in Manhattan, the Nick Aubrey Gallery. Oh, cool. uh, the Nicholas Aubrey Gallery. It's down by. It's down in uh, the Chelsea district there. Uh, Manhattan, and that's a, that's a great gallery. It's a really interesting gallery, and I'm doing a joint show with a with a uh, I think a, a French photographer called J M Lenoir, um, who was really interesting abstract photographer in a similar vein to my Bastard okay. Blue. So, yeah, they're, yeah. but they're just doing a one night preview, and the show is actually going to open. They're doing a preview three weeks before the open. So the big opening is in in mid July. Um, I'm also showing in the, uh, I think there's a, in the Hamptons in about three or four weeks um, as well. And then they're going to see how it goes. And then we'll we'll plan out from there in terms right. of America. America. I mean, America is a, 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 you know, again, I've just basically stepped off the boat there the, at Ellis Island. So I have a long way to see how it goes. Um, and it's a, you know, America is a, a interesting world in terms of its attitude and its approach to art, and it's really interesting. And um, I actually really like us. You know, they're 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 very straightforward and blunt, mm. which I really. Like. Mm. Uh, they don't take prisoners, um, so uh, that's going to be really interesting as to where that goes. So again, my goal is not to be distracted by demands on specific shows or needs because if work starts to sell and be, and then you know guys come so we want more of the same you know that's I got to make sure I I keep I keep my path on what I'm doing mm. um probably having I might there's always discussions going on there probably might be a show I might be doing something in Dublin again preview some stuff in in November around then right and also there's also discussions with uh uh Tanya Baxter, who looks after me in sort of London and over in uh, oh, Hong Kong. Busy. So what next? Busy so, time. Well, it's busy and it's not. I mean, it's 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 yes, yes, it is busy. Um, and 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 I'm lucky to be busy. Um, but I I would be even if none of that was happening, I I'd still be busy mm-hmm. doing what I'm doing. So yeah. uh, where you can, so I have if, 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 if people want to see if they go to Tanya Baxter Contemporary, uh, I'm under European artists. Okay. Uh, Stone Step Gallery here in Ireland. Uh, and my website is paulhughes.ie or my Instagram is at paulhughesgee. And uh, and in um, 
Market. It's the uh, Nicholas O'Brady Gallery. Right. right. So plenty of places there. So, well, Paul, I, I really enjoyed that because it's not often I talk about art because I'm 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 not really that creative. Per- I think creatively sometimes, but I'm not an expressively creative person. I'm not. I'm, I was never good at art in school and like that. So um, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I wasn't trying to blag it here. I, anyone who knows me would say he knows nothing about art. So, um, but I really enjoyed it uh, and. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I, I, I will let you get back to your to your chaos um, and whatever that looks like and whatever you're working on at the moment. Um, the best of luck with it. So thank you so much for taking the time, and I wish you um, you know all the success that you deserve. Because um, yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. You're one of these annoying people that's like, oh, I'm great at football. Oh, I'll stop. Oh, I'm great at advertising. No, I'll be great at art. Like you know, it's just put you to shame sometimes and saying to Liam I don't want to talk to this fella he doesn't make me feel bad about myself he's like successful in everything he does so but um, I wish you the best of, of of luck with everything and and keep enjoying it and keep saying and don't look, don't get too hard on yourself and obsessive about about and inward on yourself so oh, the best of best of luck with everything and it's it's been a huge success so, so congratulations I think I should say as well Listen you're very very kind and as I said I'm very humbled you'd, you'd want to talk to me so, yes, Paul, I have kept you long enough. So I, I really appreciate, look, I said it before, I said it again, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been fascinating. Um, and I cut loads of questions out that I wanted to ask. I think I could have done six or eight, you know, parts of this one. Um, so I really appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time. And thank you to you for listening. If you like this episode, why not listen back to some of our ever increasing back catalogue? You will find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Thank you to Andrea on sound and thank you to Kira and Khadija in marketing. And thank you, as always, to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions. So until next time, take care. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.